On April 3rd, 1968, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. was in Memphis, Tennessee. He was there to protest unequal treatment between black and white city workers. For the past 13 years, the Reverend had been advocating for equality. He'd helped orchestrate some of the century's most impactful civil rights demonstrations, including sit-ins against segregation in Birmingham, Alabama, the March on Washington, and Selma's voter registration drive. King's renowned public image also meant that he traveled a lot. Almost every night, he was in a different hotel. By now, all the managers knew him, and some even gave him the same room whenever he was in town. In Memphis, King's agenda was as busy as ever. He'd arrived behind schedule after his flight was delayed due to a bomb threat. Tired as he was, though, King was used to it by now. There were threats on his life all the time. So he shook off his fatigue and, after landing, went to give a speech at a local church. As the young reverend closed his sermon, he mused on his own mortality. He said that he'd like to live a long life, but he wasn't concerned about that now. As he put it, God had allowed him to go up to the mountaintop and had shown him the promised land. King said that he personally might not get there, but together, society eventually would. It was a metaphor for a better future, one that King worked tirelessly to achieve. King returned to the Lorraine Motel that evening and stayed in room 306, same as always. As his sermon seemed to eerily foreshadow, though, it would be King's last night in Memphis. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the FBI secret project COINTELPRO. From the 1950s to the 1970s, Bureau agents sowed discord, mostly among leftist groups, by spying on them using illegal wiretaps, bugs, and mail interception. By playing up America's fear of communism, they were able to get away with flagrantly violating the rights of thousands of citizens. Last time, we covered the rise and fall of COINTELPRO. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover first started the program to target the Communist Party in America. Soon after, he expanded its scope to include civil rights groups, the KKK, anti-war activists, and the Black Power Movement. When the public got wind of this surveillance, the FBI's reputation came crashing down. This time, we'll discuss three theories about COINTELPRO and the FBI's investigation of the civil rights movement. Since the project was far more than a surveillance program, many believe it unfairly targeted specific groups. 
First, we'll examine whether communists were behind the civil rights movement, as J. Edgar Hoover always suspected. Then, we'll uncover whether the FBI intentionally undermined Martin Luther King Jr.'s reputation in an effort to discredit the fight for racial justice. And finally, we'll tackle the biggest question of all, whether American intelligence agencies were responsible for King's assassination. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In 1941, the United States was on the brink of World War II, and all of its armed forces were segregated. This disparity prompted 15 black sailors in the Navy to protest against racist treatment that same year. Instead of addressing their concerns, though, the Navy responded by pressing the FBI to open an investigation on the sailors. Then, the FBI proceeded to expand that inquiry into the NAACP, the country's major black civil rights group. The Bureau was convinced the sailors had been pushed to voice their discontent by a more sinister organization, the Communist Soviet Union. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was communism's most staunch enemy and had been ever since he was a young man. After joining the Justice Department during America's first Red Scare, he went on to help orchestrate the 1919 Palmer Raids, when some 3,000 suspected labor activists, communists, and anarchists were arrested around the country. And by the 1940s, once Hoover had been FBI director for over 15 years, he set his sights on black Americans. He thought that communists were trying to gain ground in the United States by sowing discontent among black Americans. Specifically, he believed that the Soviet Union wanted to use the fight for racial equality to undermine the U.S. government. Despite having no evidence, Hoover used this reasoning to justify starting COINTELPRO, short for Counterintelligence Project, in 1956. Its goal was to spy on the civil rights movement, and its main target was the Communist Party of the United States, or CPUSA. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Communists were behind the civil rights movement. Hoover spent over a decade searching tirelessly for connections between civil rights activists and members of the CPUSA. 
Because the Communist Party fought for racial equality and openly supported civil rights, Hoover was convinced the two organizations shared a larger goal. The CPUSA famously stepped up to defend the Scottsboro Boys, a high-profile case in Alabama. In 1931, nine black teenagers were falsely accused of raping two white women. During the case, the CPUSA provided free legal defense for the trial and organized marches and letter-writing campaigns. And on a broader scale, some reputable members of the civil rights movement were actually former members of the CPUSA. One of the key organizers for the March on Washington was Bayard Rustin. His former communist ties and sexual identity made him a prime FBI target. Another key figure on the Bureau's watch list was Stanley Levison. He'd often helped King strategize on civil rights and wrote speeches for the Reverend. But before he became King's right-hand man, Stanley was believed to have once coordinated finances for the CPUSA. And then there was Jack O'Dell, a fundraiser for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, one of the leading civil rights organizations. Hoover's stance on black activists was laced with racism, but he wasn't completely wrong that the Soviet Union was keeping an eye on racial tensions in the U.S. In 1958, the Kremlin requested a copy of Martin Luther King Jr.'s book, Stride Toward Freedom. The USSR was just one of many countries doing that, though. The whole world was watching how the so-called land of the free would reckon with its own legacy of racial oppression. That's true. The Soviets' interest in civil rights may have been more curious than strategic, especially since so many of the civil rights movement's leaders came from Christian backgrounds. According to King himself, as he'd preached in his Baptist sermons, non-religious communism was fundamentally incompatible with Christianity. Despite his stance, though, King was regularly accused of being a communist by the people who hated him the most, Southern racists. In 1965, during the march from Selma to Montgomery, billboards along the highway depicted King speaking at what they claimed was a, quote, communist training school. In reality, the picture was from the Highlander Folk School, a center for rural communities that taught leadership skills and labor organization. That nuance was lost on most people. No matter what King did to prove otherwise, the rumors persisted among right-wing propaganda. King was well aware that any ties to communists might cast doubt on the movement. He knew that civil rights needed mainstream support, and gossip about communist leanings would not help. By the mid-1960s, America was still pushing back against the spread of communism around the world, from fully committing to the Vietnam War to battling the Soviet Union in the space race. President John F. Kennedy knew how dangerous communism accusations could be, too. In June of 1963, he invited King to the White House and personally told him that he should cut ties with Jack O'Dell and Stanley Levison, two of his closest affiliates. Kennedy had long been a supporter of civil rights legislation. He worried that the reputations of O'Dell and Levison might come back to haunt the movement. And 
The president was aware that the FBI was already keeping close tabs on them under COINTELPRO's surveillance work. The bureau had been bugging and wiretapping black activists for years. Reluctantly, King gave in. He made Odell resign from the SCLC and cut off all visible ties with Levison. Despite their integral roles in organizing the movement, his peers had to step aside for the sake of optics. What happened to Odell and Levison reflects the larger confusion in America about what the Communist Party actually stood for. While it did support the same ideology as the Soviet Union, it wasn't plotting to overthrow the American government. It was an organization that advocated for workers' rights, economic equality, and other leftist proposals. More importantly, just because Levison, Odell, and Rustin once supported those views doesn't mean they were spies funneling intel to the Kremlin. They were activists who wanted a better society. As Americans, it should have been their right to pursue their political beliefs. For Hoover, however, that distinction didn't matter. Anyone who didn't believe wholeheartedly in his version of the American way of life was an enemy. And if they posed a threat to it in any way, they were helping the communist cause. It was all or nothing. Hoover was unshakable in his belief that he'd find some hard evidence linking communism to civil rights, but he never did. Even with the unbelievable amount of manpower the FBI put into trying to uncover communist plots, they always turned up empty-handed. Take Birmingham, Alabama in May of 1963. The FBI suspected communists were behind the unrest, which ended in police letting dogs and fire hoses loose on peaceful protesters. Once the violence was broadcast on national TV, it made the authorities in charge look really bad. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the FBI chose to investigate evidence that Soviet agitators had started the disruption, but there was none. Hoover's prized wiretaps, which had been a cornerstone of COINTELPRO, also failed to uncover anything about communism in the civil rights movement, which was a problem for the Bureau, especially as far as King's closest associates were concerned. Eventually, the FBI was so desperate for information that it broke into Stanley Levison's office at least 29 times. They found nothing. As for Bayard Rustin, the FBI went to great lengths to justify their suspicions. They wrote, quote, While there may not be any direct evidence that he is a communist, neither is there any substantial evidence that he is anti-communist. Agents were so careful with their wording because they had to report their findings to Hoover, and he refused to believe there wasn't a connection. For those who wanted to keep their jobs, they had to play along. Another example was William Sullivan, who'd led COINTELPRO and previously reported that there was no evidence of a communist plot in the civil rights movement. But after King gave his 1963 I Have a Dream speech, Sullivan completely backtracked. Trying to appease Hoover's ego, he wrote, quote, The director is correct. Sullivan then labeled King as one of the most dangerous threats to the security of the nation. Sullivan's comment summarized the FBI's attitude in a nutshell. 
King was a menace because Hoover said so, and they were going to go after him no matter what the facts showed. As far as J. Edgar Hoover was concerned, communism was everywhere. But even after decades of spying, the FBI turned up no evidence that the CPUSA orchestrated the civil rights movement. And Martin Luther King Jr. actively distanced himself from his former CPUSA allies to keep the integrity of the movement alive. For me, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the absolute truth, I have to give this theory a 1. The FBI director used his power to further an investigation that had no merit. I have to agree. The total lack of proof shows that Hoover prioritized his own agenda. And he definitely leaned into pointing out the coincidences between the Communist Party and the Civil Rights Movement. For me, this theory is a three. There were some people in the Civil Rights Movement who were also in the CPUSA, but they certainly weren't trying to aid the USSR through the movement. As history would soon show, the FBI didn't need communism to take down King. Instead, the Bureau got something much more scandalous from the surveillance bugs they planted in his hotel rooms. Coming up, J. Edgar Hoover digs into King's personal life. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers... Join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru. The doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs. And the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. When people think of the 1963 March on Washington now, it seems like a triumphant turning point in the nation's history. Over 200,000 Americans came together to demand equality. But at the time, the demonstration was treated very differently. On August 28, 1963, as massive crowds gathered to hear Martin Luther King Jr. deliver his now-famous speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, federal troops surrounded the demonstrators. They feared an uprising, and the military wasn't the only department keeping tabs on the activists. Publicly, the Kennedy administration was pro-civil rights, but the president himself was giving conflicting signals. On one hand, he was trying to pass a bill through Congress that would make racial discrimination illegal. 
On the other hand, though, he'd allowed Hoover to wiretap civil rights leaders. Even on the day of MLK's speech, there were two White House aides watching from the sidelines to pull the plug in case things got too radical. Of course, the FBI was on standby, too. Intelligence agents were scattered throughout the crowd to keep an eye on things, which meant taking note of who was in attendance. Surveillance of the march was so intense that some civil rights leaders, like future Congressman John Lewis, felt disillusioned. He knew that the movement was being scrutinized so closely that it made him distrust anything the federal government did. Lewis had a reason to be wary. In just a matter of weeks, the FBI would begin a new surveillance campaign on King. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The FBI intentionally undermined Martin Luther King Jr.'s reputation in an effort to discredit the civil rights movement. On October 14, 1964, King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. It was global recognition of his important work. Unsurprisingly, the accolade left Hoover seething. A few weeks before the ceremony, the FBI director called a press conference. He proceeded to tell a room full of reporters that King was, quote, the most notorious liar in the country. Hoover wanted the public to know that King had skeletons in his closet, and the FBI knew about them. Starting in October of 1963, Hoover had planted bugs in King's hotel rooms to illegally listen in on his conversations. But the bugs weren't just there to capture what King said, it was also what he did and with whom. The recordings revealed that after King finished a long day of work, he liked to relax, often with women who weren't his wife. Thanks to the bugs, the FBI had sex tapes of Martin Luther King Jr. For Hoover, this was fuel on the fire in calling King a hypocrite, the Baptist minister who slept around on the side. In 1964, Hoover called him a, quote, tomcat with obsessive degenerate sexual urges. But as much as the director condemned King's actions, he was pleased with this turn of developments. Now, the FBI could go after the reverend's morals. Unveiling MLK's personal life didn't phase Hoover one bit. Unfortunately, he was all too seasoned in weaponizing people's sex lives. During the Lavender Scare of the 1950s, Hoover rooted out gay men working for the federal government. He deemed them unstable deviants and put them in the same class as drug users, the mentally ill, and of course, communists. Hoover also kept his own arsenal of blackmail against other powerful figures, like President Kennedy and his brother. The director had plenty of evidence of their respective mistresses. Hoover was determined to use the hotel tapes against King. He and COINTELPRO lead William Sullivan soon concocted a plan that was particularly sinister. In 1964, Sullivan prepared a package of the recordings accompanied by an anonymous letter to be delivered to King. It called the Reverend an evil animal and a liability to the movement. It said his time was coming to an end. The letter closed with a call to action. It read, quote, King, 
There is one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. You are done. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. The implication was clear. King should kill himself, or the public would learn about the tapes. While the package and letter were addressed to King, both eventually found their way into the hands of MLK's wife, Coretta Scott King. And while she did listen to some of the tapes, whatever her reaction was, she kept it private. After hearing the recordings, Coretta alerted her husband. King was aware of his enemies and their manipulation. He didn't entertain any of the letter's demands. So the FBI made good on their threat. They reportedly offered the recordings to various journalists. Soon the world would get an up-close-and-personal look at their beloved Nobel Prize winner. The FBI even sent the tapes to other civil rights leaders. They were just doing what they did best, sowing division in the movement and destroying it from the inside. But, to Hoover's surprise, the press evidently refused to publish the tapes. Outside of the FBI, people didn't make a business of airing out private lives. They weren't about to drag King's name through the mud on account of his affairs. Hoover had overplayed his hand. To many, Hoover was living in the past. At almost 70 years old, he wasn't in touch with the societal norms of the 1960s. Attitudes on sex had changed, and according to one contemporary journalist, that meant Hoover was, quote, a prude who misjudged the morality of the average American. And in comparison, so much of the nation was rallying behind the cry for civil rights and equality. People cared about King's vision much more than his private life, so they chose to ignore the FBI. It would take many years before the public learned of the tapes, Over 10 years later, in 1977, King's former assistant sued the FBI for damages. He wanted access to the transcripts. The judge made the FBI turn the tapes over to the National Archives, but the courts also had them sealed until 2027. No one can access them firsthand until then. The FBI's behavior with King reveals one key flaw. Their goal was never to protect the civil rights movement, and thus the country, from communist infiltration. They were just looking for ways to bring the movement to an end. The real motivation for all this espionage was simple. Hoover was racist. He thought black activists were destroying America, and he regularly referred to civil rights as a, quote, hate movement. Even when COINTELPRO investigated the KKK, it wasn't because Hoover wanted to. It was because President Johnson dragged him by his feet to do it. Burke Marshall, who ran the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, wrote that Hoover would never have gone after the KKK on his own. On the issue of racism, he said the FBI was, quote, worse than useless. And William Sullivan, one of Hoover's confidants on COINTELPRO, called out the director's racism for what it was. He stated bluntly that for his entire life, Hoover hated liberalism, black, and Jewish people. 
His actions as FBI director certainly bore that out. Given that we have the actual letter the FBI sent to King and know the tapes exist, it goes without saying that the FBI was clearly trying to manipulate King's reputation. The transcripts are sealed until 2027, which leaves a small margin as to what's actually in them. But there's enough to show the Bureau was angling to undermine King. I'll give this theory a 9 out of 10. The tapes may be sealed to the public, but plenty of people with access have heard them. And for me, the most telling aspect of all this is J. Edgar Hoover's racism. It's reprehensible that he abused his power to target King, but unfortunately, it's the truth. This is one of those times where I'm giving the theory a 10 out of 10. If there's a consistent thread that connects COINTELPRO to the civil rights movement, it may just be Hoover's feelings on King. That hatred didn't go away either. Only four years after sending him the anonymous letter, the FBI got what it wanted. King was dead. And the man who supposedly did it all but vanished. Coming up, the question of whether the FBI murdered MLK. Now, back to the story. The 1960s was an era rife with political assassinations. In addition to King, President John F. Kennedy, Black activist Malcolm X, and Senator Robert Kennedy were all targets of high-profile killings. All of these men had found enemies who disagreed with their respective political ideologies. Some were targeted more aggressively than others, and in truth, the circumstances of their deaths were often suspicious. There seemed to be more to it than just random acts of violence. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number three. The FBI was responsible for Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Before King's death, no one had ever heard the name James Earl Ray, a white man from Illinois, born in 1928. Ray led a nondescript life of dropping out of school and later the army. He was discharged in his early 20s for his, quote, ineptness and lack of adaptability. He also had a history of criminal activity. His 1949 arrest in Los Angeles for armed robbery was just the first in a long string of convictions. In 1952, he held up a taxi in Illinois and spent two years behind bars. Then he served another four years after stealing from a post office. In 1959, he robbed three grocery stores. While Ray was supposed to be behind bars for the next 20 years, he'd only served seven when he escaped. As a fugitive, he bummed around the U.S., Canada, and Mexico before ending up back in Los Angeles in November 1967. Despite trying to reinvent himself as a dancer, bartender, and even a pornographer, nothing stuck. Unable to commit or find passion in anything, Ray became fixated with the only thing that resonated with him, white supremacy. By 1968, Ray had become an ardent supporter of former Alabama governor George Wallace, who was running for president. Wallace's famous quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, said it all. While Ray was volunteering for Wallace in California, 
he developed a hatred for Dr. King. When Ray heard about his speeches on the news, something struck a nerve in him. Around March 17th, Ray left L.A. and spent that week driving across the country to Atlanta, Georgia, where King lived. Upon his arrival, Ray bought a map and circled King's house and church. Likely seeing that the Reverend was traveling, Ray then made a detour to Birmingham, Alabama, where he purchased a Remington hunting rifle using a fake name. Weapon in hand, Ray tracked King's movements. His next stop was Memphis, Tennessee. Ray arrived there in early April, the same day as King. He rented a room above the bar that was right across from the Lorraine Motel, where King usually stayed. King always got the same room at the Lorraine, number 306. Its balcony faced the street. Ray camped out until he saw King on the balcony of his room. And on April 4, 1968, at 6.01 p.m., he peered through his binoculars as King stood outside. Ray balanced the rifle, aimed, and then fired. The bullet hit 39-year-old King in the lower jaw. With that one act, the man who'd withstood decades of violence and did so much to better the world was no more. In the moments after assassinating King, Ray scrambled to cover his tracks. He wrapped the rifle and binoculars in a blanket and dropped them in the doorway of the downstairs bar as he fled. After driving to Atlanta, Ray made his way to Canada on a bus. From there, he managed to procure a fake Canadian passport and flew to London. But the fingerprints on the rifle outside the Memphis bar were cold, hard proof. Ray was the assassin. After identifying him, by May, the FBI and nearly every other law enforcement agency in the country was on the hunt. Wherever Ray was, though, he wasn't to be found. The FBI was in the midst of the biggest, most expensive manhunt they'd ever done and still couldn't locate him. To the public, this looked like supreme incompetence or worse, indifference. Given everything the FBI had done to surveil King, Americans were in disbelief that the Bureau totally dropped the ball when it came to catching his murderer. Finally, in June, Ray was caught in London as he tried to board a flight for Brussels. A month later, he was extradited back to the United States. If his case went to trial, he faced the death penalty. Consequently, in March of 1969, Ray pled guilty to murdering King, which allowed him to avoid a trial and possibly the electric chair. Instead, he got 99 years behind bars. But just three days later, Ray changed his story. He said he'd been bullied into confessing by his lawyer and the FBI. What's more, he claimed that the real assassin was a shadowy figure named Raoul. Apparently, Raoul was a gun trafficker Ray met in Montreal in 1967, a year before King was killed. According to Ray, Raoul told him to buy the hunting rifle and rent a room across from King's hotel. And somehow, it was Raoul who'd been with him in the room and pulled the trigger, not Ray. However, Ray's new account of events didn't quite line up. 
His alibi kept changing, as did his descriptions of Raoul. All the holes in Ray's story aside, the case itself did have some bizarre aspects. Like a witness who claimed to have seen a man in the bushes below Ray's window on the day of the assassination. For some reason, the next day, city workers cut them down, even though they were technically part of a crime scene. And ballistics experts couldn't prove definitively that Ray's rifle fired the shot that killed King. The years to come would prove equally frustrating. Since Ray had officially pled guilty in 1969, it seemed like the case was done and closed. However, in 1976, Congress formed the House Select Committee on Assassinations. King's murder was among those investigated, and the committee came to the conclusion that James Earl Ray was the killer. But, according to their findings, he probably had help. They argued there was substantial evidence that the George Wallace campaign in St. Louis offered Ray a $50,000 bounty to kill King, and that Ray's two brothers were in on the scheme. This was all they could pose, though, since all the credible witnesses had already passed away. Chief Counsel Robert Blakey, who headed the committee, wondered whether the FBI or CIA were also involved. But even if there was evidence that pointed to intelligence agencies being involved, they'd likely destroyed it soon after the affair. In the end, Blakey concluded that the case was not properly investigated when it occurred in 1968, and now it was too late to prove many details. Still, some insisted that there had to be more to the story than just one lone gunman. King's own family was vocal that there was a greater conspiracy afoot. His wife Coretta and their children worked nonstop over the years to get the case reopened. A lawyer named William Pepper, who'd known King, was also convinced that James Earl Ray was innocent. To Pepper, the conspiracy that killed King was wide-sweeping. Everyone from President Johnson's office and the FBI to the Memphis police and the Memphis mafia were involved. The gist of his claim was that Hoover paid off the mob to hire a police officer who did the actual killing. In 1993, Pepper held a mock trial on HBO in a bid to draw attention to the case. This included a satellite feed of Ray testifying from prison. After hearing all the evidence, the jury found him not guilty, though it wasn't legally binding. For all its fanfare, the mock trial did prompt some new action. After it aired, a witness who'd been silent for 25 years came forward. His name was Lloyd Jowers, and he'd owned the bar beneath Ray's room in Memphis. He said he knew the real story behind King's assassination. Jowers claimed he was paid $100,000 by the Memphis Mafia to hire King's killer. The real gunman was a Memphis police officer who'd fired from the bushes below Ray's window. After King was dead, he gave the real murder weapon to Jowers, who passed it on to the mysterious figure known as Raoul. He said Raoul threw the weapon in the Mississippi River. Jowers' story sparked renewed interest in the case. 
For one, in 1997, King's son Dexter met with Ray in person, and he believed Ray's plea that he didn't kill King. Though Ray died in prison in 1998, the King family still asked President Bill Clinton to reopen the case that same year. In response, the Justice Department assigned a special counsel to look into the assassination. In the end, Jower's statement was so compelling that the King family filed a civil suit against him for the wrongful death of their father. It wasn't a criminal trial, so Jowers didn't face any actual prison time, but the family wanted America to hear all the information. In November of 1999, a jury heard 70 witnesses testify over the course of 30 days. At the end of it all, after deliberating for just one hour, they ruled that Jowers, as well as the mafia and unspecified government agencies, were behind King's death. King's family applauded the verdict. However, the impending official findings from the government were less satisfying. In 2000, the Justice Department concluded that Ray was the sole culprit in King's murder and that no government entities helped him. The department also discredited Jower's version of events. They claimed that because he'd repeatedly changed his story and was even on the record saying that he would make things up for money, he wasn't credible. While the government repeatedly insisted on this narrative, King's peers in the civil rights movement weren't so convinced. Congressman John Lewis believed the public didn't know the whole truth. Similarly, Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young, who'd been at the Lorraine Motel with King, refused to accept that Ray was the killer. He thought there were too many assassinations in the 1960s for them all to be a coincidence. There are others that have taken the stance, though, that this conspiracy against King was driven by a psychological need. John Campbell, the assistant district attorney who investigated the case, said that King's larger-than-life persona made it hard for people to accept that he was killed by a random person. Considering how far the FBI went to manipulate King, though, it's no wonder that so many people thought the agency was involved in his death. And given Hoover's vehement hatred for King, the director hardly deserved the benefit of the doubt. It's true, at first, even the government wasn't sure what hand the FBI may have had in King's death. But the purpose of the congressional investigation was to determine just that, and the report concluded decisively that they weren't involved. As for James Earl Ray's version of events, the Raoul figure was completely made up, and Ray's fingerprints were the only ones found on the rifle. For me, I have to give the theory that the FBI was responsible for MLK's assassination a 2 out of 10. I'm not so sure. For one, King's family believes it was a bigger conspiracy, and we know that black activists were disproportionately targeted during this era. And we can't ignore that the FBI had spent years trying to destroy King's image. To say that they had no hand in his death feels short-sighted. Agents might not have pulled the trigger, but the letter they wrote urging suicide proves they wanted him dead. I think they were involved in one way or another, though we may never know exactly how. I give this theory a 5 out of 10. 
While different theories on the motivations behind King's assassination will continue to be debated, the scandal at the heart of all of our theories is COINTELPRO. The FBI illegally bugged the homes and workplaces of thousands of American citizens. And every president, from Franklin Roosevelt to Richard Nixon, not only knew about it, but encouraged it. In total, COINTELPRO had 12 major campaigns, 2,340 different operations, and planted over 8,575 bugs and wiretaps. Such a staggering scope only suggests that it's likely the FBI would have kept on sabotaging whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted, if the information to stop them hadn't come to light. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on COINTELPRO, amongst the many sources we used, we found Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on Black America, 1960-1972, by Kenneth O'Reilly, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Bairley, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.